Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take those out with me, and you can turn to Isaiah chapter 32. We'll be there in a minute. Uh, one announcement that I neglected to mention, we have a reception that we have on the first and third Sunday of each month, and it's called Coffee with the Pastors, and so if you are new or visiting or you have extended family in town, I'd love the opportunity just to meet you and greet you, and that happens right at the close of our service. It's uh, right out the sanctuary doors and immediately to your right uh, in the library. So about 55 minutes, nobody's counting, I'm kind of be on sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> Aloha. <laughs> so a couple weeks ago, and maybe going on a month ago now, I had a friend who had this question. He said, what does it mean to be a noble person? And he was reading through the passage that, that I want to look at this morning, and I thought, you know what, that's a, that is a pretty good question for us to uh, examine. There's, there's all sorts of ways that we could answer that. What does it mean to be a noble person? Because that's not really a word that we use any longer to describe each other. Uh, if, if we talk about something that is noble, uh, our minds probably go to the royalty over across the pond. And, you know, we think of aristocrats and people of high social standing, whether it's politically or socially. And, and, and so we think of nobility in, in those sorts of ways. Some might go back to a little older understanding um, that to be noble means to be uh, honorable, uh, upright, courageous, trustworthy, and, and all of those things, I think, uh, are accurate. And if we think about it, uh, we could probably identify people in our lives that we would put into that second category, honest, trustworthy, steady, consistent, uh, and we could point to them and say, you know what, that I think about it, that's a really noble person. There's a... Uh, a trend, or I should say kind of, kind of a path. We call it uh, upward mobility. So uh, over, over time, if you have the tendency to rise from, from one place, whether it's uh, political or social or financial, if you rise up out of a situation in sort of climb the ladder in society, we call it upward mobility. But what I want to talk about this morning is what it, would it look like to climb the ladder of upward nobility? And I think as we go through this, the, it'll, it'll begin to make sense what I mean when we say upward nobility. So if you have your Bibles open, I want to read uh, the first part of Isaiah chapter 32. So I know you just got settled in. Would you go ahead and stand with me to honor the authority of God's Word? Isaiah writes this, See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. And these, these first three verses clue in, because this is one passage from the Old Testament that is identified as a, a reference to the coming king of King Jesus. See, a king will reign in righteousness. Verse 2, each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm like streams of water 
in the desert, in the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected, for fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil, and they practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. Here's the key verse for this morning. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I'm fascinated by personality tests. There's so many different tests that are out there, ranging in duration from just spending a few moments filling out a little quiz, and then at the end of the quiz it will tell you what you represent, or, you know, I'm most like this movie character, or this vegetable, or whatever it is. So I'm just fascinated at how we determine how we would be like whatever and what that would say about who I am. But there's also some that are really in-depth that, you know, take a half an hour, maybe an hour to complete. They're very meticulous and detailed. And when they take your answers and they put them through their formula, they're pretty precise in identifying who you are, how you think, um, ways that you behave. Uh, and so I, every time I see a, a personality test like that, I, I try and take it. You know, one time at, around Christmas time, a couple years ago, I found out I was Santa Claus, you know, and that <clears throat> had no bearing on life whatsoever, but it certainly was fun. I, I, I wasn't the Grinch. So that was the good news. But there's one test that's been out there for, oh, probably at least a decade, probably longer than that. Um, you take this personality test, and, and it will tell you if you are most like a lion, a beaver, an otter, uh, or a golden retriever. Have you, heard, have you heard of this one? Some of you might have even taken it. Um, and so we have this tendency, we like to compare ourselves to animals and the qualities that they exhibit. So if you are, um, if you're a lion, they say, well, that, you know, strength and uh, leader types and dominant and, and, and those sorts of things. If you are, if you're an otter, you're like the life of the party and social and, um, you know, you are gifted with the graces of being able to communicate with people and high energy, enthusiastic. Um, Beavers are very meticulous. They are, these are the spreadsheet people. They love, uh, you know, keeping everything just in precise detail and order, and they're very industrious and hardworking. Um, 
And then we have the, the golden retrievers who, you know, there's just something about a golden retriever. They're, they're your best friend. They are steady and dependable. And, and so did I get all of them, golden retriever? Oh, yeah, I got all, all of them there. <clears throat> I'm fascinated by how we connect our own emotions and behaviors. And, and there's something that's powerful uh, and gets inside us like, oh, okay, I can see that quality. Because sometimes it's easier to go third party like, oh, yeah, otter, golden retriever. I can un my, understand myself by looking at a third party object here. But I was thinking in terms of this particular message, um, what animals then would characterize being noble? So, Clydesdale horses came to mind, yeah? Uh, lions, would you put on that list maybe? How about a moose? Moose, anybody? But the one that I kind of fixated on was the giraffe. The giraffe just seems noble. But then if you have uh, one list, then there has to be the opposite list too, right? <laughs> so, animals that are not so noble. So, you have nature's speed bump, the possum. <laughs> not, not so noble a creature. Then you have, um, you have moles. I'd put moles on the not so noble list. I mean, they're always trying to undermine your work. And, um, and pigs. You know, I love the pig. But, you know, it's not so noble to just roll around in the mud all the time. And so you're getting an inside look at how my brain works. <laughs> And some of you are saying, oh good, it's only 45 minutes left. <laughs> there, there's a stereotype <clears throat> that I, that I want to try and poke a hole in this morning. Um, th there's a stereotype out there, and TV sitcoms for years have been uh, pumping this one up by diminishing the male character in society. And so you might hear out in society that men are pigs. And if you watch TV, if you watch movies, you'll get really good pictures of what that looks like. And let me just say, that's hurtful and it's demeaning and it's not inspiring to try and be any better. And so what I want to do today is I want, this, this message is for both men and women. It applies equally, so if I say man, I mean person today, but I want us all to embrace the pig. Can we do that? Embrace the pig. <laughs> Some of you are like, okay, 42 minutes left, yes. <laughs> I noticed something about our text. Our text shows us. It gives us a, a picture of what it means to be a noble person, and it gives us a picture of what it's not to be a noble person. And so by embrace the pig, what I mean is when you, when you hear this stereotype out in society, I want to give you a new frame of reference. Like, you know what? I'm going to live in to being a pig, and it's going to look like this. Because a noble person is a person of passion, a noble person is a person of integrity, and a noble person is a person of generosity. 
And so I think that is something that we can embrace. And I think that that is something that our faith in Jesus Christ calls us into. And so let's look at what a biblical definition uh, would look like uh, if we are to embrace the pig. Now, something that you need to know about the Hebrew word noble is that the root word of, of, the, of noble means to lift up, to incline would be more appropriate. So when I said upward nobility, we have to incline our personalities. We have to incline our thoughts. We have to incline our behaviors to become noble. If you incline something, it, it requires intentional effort, right? I mean, you have, to, you have to work to incline. I think our natural default position, actually the one that we prefer, we'd rather be in the recline position. To incline, that's work. That's like exercise. That's hard. I don't know if I can sustain that. So I'd rather just, well, on the couch in a reclined position, because that's easy. You just lay there. Or you go through life and just, eh, whatever. C'est la vie. Such is life. And so whatever happens to you is more or less accidental. Anything good that you do, it wasn't necessarily intentional. You just kind of stumbled into it. You kind of go through life in a reclined position, just not caring about so much. So we have the incline and we have recline. But sometimes we take intentional steps and we go on the decline. And to go on the decline would be to enter into old habits, uh, be enticed into succumbing to the evil desires of our hearts. And so we take steps into a path of sin. And you know what? To go downhill is a whole lot easier than going uphill, right? And so when you start the downhill, if you start the decline, you build momentum. And it's hard to reverse that momentum. I mean, we don't get a ton of snow around here, but when we do, uh, uh, we live at the top of a hill that's a couple hundred feet up. And so when we get snow and they haven't plowed the road yet, it's fun to take a sled and go from our house all the way to the bottom. That's easy because it's declining. But then when we get, you know, that quarter mile down the road and you turn around and you look, okay, we gotta go all the way back here and the snow is deep, it, you gotta trudge through that to go back uphill. But the word itself, noble, gives us a really easy test. So in all of these qualities that we're going to talk about, being a person of passion, a person of integrity, and a person of generosity, there's an easy test that you can give yourself. It looks like this. Am I on the decline? Do I not care so much? Am I not really being intentional? Am I just kind of reclined in this area? Or, or am I inclining my heart and my life towards what God would want for me? Decline, recline, incline is, is what we want. And so the first quality that we're looking at is to be a person of, of passion. 
And when I talk about passion, what I'm what I mean is that as a follower of Christ, that we are secure in our identity in him, and we live it out in such a way that others can see that we are followers of Christ. It's a way of saying that you genuinely care, um, that you are engaged with life, and you're engaged in relationship with people around you. Uh, the gospel calls us to be in relationship with one another, to share our faith with other people. You know, uh, a couple months ago, I, I put that challenge out there to, you know, to, to make an intentional effort to bless three people a week, to make an intentional effort to eat with different people throughout your week, because the gospel calls us into this relationship with others. And, you know, if you, if you just don't care, then... Uh, you just kind of float through life, and you're not really present and engaged with those around you. And so a noble person is one who is passionate and engaged, and you understand that your life has a purpose. And not only do you understand that your life has a purpose, but, but you look for ways to instill in other people uh, the, the thought that their life has a purpose as well. And so you live in a way that sort of inspires people to a better way of living. My life has a purpose and this is what it is and I, and I know that your life is meaningful and has a purpose too. That's being a person of passion, spurring one another on to greater things, to love and to good deeds as the author of Hebrews would say. Well, Isaiah also talks about the opposite. We didn't read the verse, but the very next verse, uh, Isaiah 32, 9, it talks about being complacent. We're a person of complacency. So when, when you are not inclining your life in ways where you are engaged and connected with the people around you, that, that you just kind of drift through life without purpose, um, then you start to go to the recline position, and then you, if you start taking steps towards the decline, you become complacent and uncaring, and the end of that road is apathy. And, and so Isaiah speaks to that, you know, those who are complacent shows us the downhill decline there. Paul writes about it in Romans 12. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. It's important to keep that going. Jesus talks about this in the book of Revelation. He spoke some words to the church in Laodicea. And he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. You don't care. One way or the other, you're just floating and drifting through life. I wish, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, uncaring, just drifting along, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's the words of Jesus. He wants us to be passionate people. To be a noble person is to be a person of passion, engaged and caring. 
Well, to be a noble person also means to be a person of integrity. And integrity is the quality of being honest and truthful, uh, having principles, having morals that are uh, shaped and informed by the Word of God. Uh, it is taking the Word of God and aligning our thoughts and our behaviors so that we become obedient to the Word, to that code of ethics and that, that moral framework and the value system that we find in Scripture. To be a person of integrity is to align our thoughts, behaviors, uh, all of that, all of our life in accordance with the Word of God. That's what it means to live a life of integrity as a Christian. To be a person of integrity is also described as being uh, whole or undivided. To be the same person, you know, out in the world as you are when you're on this property on First Street. To be the same person when you're at work as you are at home. It's to align your thoughts and actions in the whole of your life so you're not split, you're not divided, you're not living in silos as we talk about once in a while. A person of integrity is one who is consistent in being morally upright. Notice upright, the inclined position here. Now to say that doesn't mean that you, you never stumble, that you never fall down. But when you do, as a person of integrity, when you realize that you messed up or you hurt somebody, then, then you are very quick to recognize that and to own it and take it on board and then go and seek to make reconciliation and restoration where, where, you've, where you've messed up. That's what it means to be a person of integrity. See, the incline is built into the wording of integrity, to be an upright character, which tells us that it's not easy. It tells us that it's going to need intentional effort, habitual practice, so that these things become just our natural way of operating. <clears throat> so living in integrity it is a, it's a natural application of, of living out our faith in Jesus. It's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, because if you ask me, I... I know that I can't do all of what I just said on my own. I need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with me, to guide, to remind, to poke me with a sharp object on occasion to get my attention and back on course because I've just let my thoughts stray or slipped into um, you know, a way of thinking or, or acting, and, and the Holy Spirit is there to call us out. And that's a good thing for us, even though... It hurts once in a while. God wants each of us to be filled with his fullness. The, the scripture tells us that God wants what's inside him to be inside us. And I love how Peter talks about being empowered by the fullness of God. In Second Peter 1, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Did you hear that? He's... His divine power has given us everything that we need to be able to do what we're talking about today. Yes. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that 
through them you may participate in the divine nature. Does that get your attention? Isn't that, that's truly astounding that we have, through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to participate in the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption of the world, we have got to leave that behind, which and all that stuff is just caused by all the evil desires in our life. See, we can participate in the fullness of God. And when we have the opportunity to participate in the fullness of God, we can live as people of integrity, knowing that, yes, we might stumble, but that we can repent and be forgiven of that immediately. So the Spirit does this work in us, uh, helps us along, motivates us, encourages us, but our maturity in Christ and how we practice our faith is a lot of times it's also determined by the choices that we make. It's a, it's a conscious choice to live towards God or to live away from Him. He's given us everything we need, all the power, all the resource, all the knowledge that we need to live a life in alignment with the character of Christ, we, we have that at our disposal, but it is our choice on whether or not we're going to take that on board and live by it. And we also need to know that we need to be on guard. We need to go through life recognizing that everybody around us isn't going to be real happy about choices that we make. You know, if you have come to Christ and you have left a way of living and you're really making efforts to move away from former behaviors, all those people that you used to hang out with, they're going to try and convince you that you don't need, that's not really that important to live a life of integrity. And they're going to be constantly just trying to woo you back in, to, to entice you. They'll maybe even ridicule you and tease you and they'll make you know, really passionate pleas. There's a lot of peer pressure that, will, that you will experience when you are trying to live like Jesus. People are going to try and knock you down. And they're going to try and convince you to compromise on your way of living a life of integrity. But don't fret. Don't despair when others come up against you and they will, you're, you're doing the right thing by trying to do the right thing. And while it might seem really difficult, hard, complicated in the short term, we're not thinking about just a, a really short sprint race here. We're thinking about a long marathon. We're thinking about eternity and living in to the glorious promises that God has given us. So hang in there. You can do it. Isaiah 32 also talks about what the opposite of integrity looks like. In verses uh, 6 and 7, he says, For fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, And from the thirsty they withhold water. Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. When when you're 
when you're on the decline, what Isaiah has just what Isaiah has just described is when you're on the decline path, when it has to do with integrity, it's not straight downhill. It's a very crooked, winding path. It's a, it's a crooked path. That's how Scripture describes it. And the crooked path is one where you practice dishonesty and hypocrisy and duplicity. And um, Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. And Isaiah says that the opposite path, the crooked path, Isaiah used the word fool. He says fools are the ones who take the crooked path. And if you know much about Hebrew, or maybe this will be something that you can just kind of file away for when you're going through your Bible readings in the coming days, especially when you're in the, the Old Testament and in, in the Hebrew text, Fool is one of the very strongest negative words in the whole Old Testament. Fool. And fool is one of the strongest words in the Old Testament because a fool has rejected the ways of God. A fool has rejected the things of God. And the fool thinks they can do it better on their own, and so the fool takes the crooked path which goes in directly opposite direction from God. And so Isaiah calls him out and says, hey, if, you're, if, you are, if you are on the path away from integrity, if you're on the decline in that area, you're like the fool taking the crooked path, going in the opposite direction of God. So if you are uh, going to embrace being a noble person, you're a person of passion, and you're a person of integrity, but you're also a person of generosity. And in your translation of the Bible, in chapter 32, verse 8 that we read, um, I think most of the translations use the word noble. Several use honorable. Some use the word generous. All a way of trying to get around what the, the Hebrew understanding of, of that word is. And so generosity is a big component of what it means to be a noble person. Paul writes about it to the church in Corinth. He says, whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously, reaps generously. See, a noble, generous person is one, you could say they're, they're large-hearted. They look out for caring for the needs of those around them. It doesn't always, uh, giving in a generous sort of spirit doesn't necessarily mean money. It's not always financial resources, but there's other things that you can give. In our society, time is huge. Being generous with your time with other people. When, when you're really in a hurry and trying to get from one place to the next, but you know that there's a person right here who just needs 10 minutes. It's so hard in our economy of time to think that we can afford that. And so it's really easy to be stingy with our time and just blow right by people who just need the five or 10 minutes. Or maybe it's a little bit longer. But in the grand scheme of things, is where you're going that much more important than this opportunity that that God's put right in front of you. Sometimes this over here is extremely important. So don't 
dismiss responsibilities over here, any emergencies if that's what you're going to. But pay attention to how you can be generous with your time or become more generous with your time. I like how generous people, um, they give sometimes so that they can see what is impossible become possible. And I go back to one of the favorite stories in the New Testament where Jesus is on the hillside with 5,000 of his closest friends and all their families. And it's late in the day, and they're all hungry. The disciples notice, hey, Jesus, you've got to wrap up the sermon um, and, and just dismiss them so they can go into the towns and find some food. And Jesus looks right at him. He says, well, why don't you feed them? And they're like, well, we don't have anything. So they go and they find somebody. They find a generous person in the crowd who is willing to give up, willing to give up his lunch. Five loaves, two fish. I'm willing, yeah, I'll give this to the cause because there's something big that's going to happen. It's probably impossible to feed this whole, whole crowd, but I'm willing to give what I have to maybe make this possible. So there's people that you know that they'll, they'll, they'll look at a situation and they're willing to give resource, time, energy, dollars to where there's a picture of, no, that's not even possible. There's no way that we can help these people in such a way that it'll change their life. But I'm willing to do something to make what looks impossible possible. A person who is noble is one who has a spirit of generosity. But the opposite of generosity, if you're going, if you're going the opposite direction, if you're, if you're on the decline in this area, your, your large, open heart becomes smaller and closed. And ultimately, at the end of the path of not being generous is to have a heart of stone. That you don't care. You, you can't see need. And if you see need, eh, it's not my problem. Somebody else's problem. They should have made better decisions along the way. Uh, on the decline, we get to being stingy, sold people, tight-fisted, selfish, unsharing. Isaiah, he, he whacked that one hard in verses 6 and 7. The hungry, they leave empty. And from the thirsty, they withhold water. It, he's saying that if you don't do something, it's like you're actively not doing it. You're, you're making that choice to not do it. Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. See, the end of the path... That, the end of that path is just a hopeless picture of stingy-minded folk unwilling to share, unwilling to spread the spirit of generosity. If we only think about the gift that God gave us of Jesus coming to die on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven so we can have right relationship with him, we ought to live 
as noble people, people of passion, people of integrity, people of generosity, simply because of God's grace, simply because we are grateful for that. Looking through the New Testament, I, I came back to a story that's used often for illustrative purposes, the kind of talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan every, every so often. Jesus was responding to somebody who was asking a question about what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And the person, and Jesus said, well, what does the word tell you? What, what do you know from Scripture? And the guy says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is the time in, that Luke tells it that this particular uh, person who's inquiring of Jesus also adds and, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he, he put those two together. The things that Jesus has put together have come together in his mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's a great answer. Go live into that. The guy wanted to justify himself, and so he he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Where can I draw that circle? Where on the other side, they're not my neighbor anymore. I only have to pay attention to the people within this circle here, and Jesus says, there is no circle. There's no line that you can draw in the sand all the way around you where these people are included and these people are excluded. And Jesus tells them the story to illustrate it. He tells them about a guy who is in Jerusalem. He's taken that long uh, trek down to Jericho. And so uh, we aren't told, but because he's starting in Jerusalem, he's probably, you know, uh, a Jewish person going down to Jericho. And along that way, it's a treacherous uh, climb up and down. It's rocky terrain. It's a great place to get hijacked. And so on this way, from Jerusalem to Jericho, this guy gets robbed, beat up, left for dead, side of the road. And Jesus says there were a couple guys that came along, and, you know, one was a priest, so like District Superintendent Kester was going down one side, and, and, and uh, he sees the guy, and he's like, oh, no, not for me, and he moves over to the, to the other side. And then another religious person goes by and does the same thing. Like, I can't. These two people, Jesus was careful to make the connection that they were people of faith. These would be people who, who knew what was required to live a noble life for God. These would be people who would have preached, who would have spoken words encouraging others to be people of integrity and people of generosity. And yet both these guys totally swing and miss on being guys of integrity for the very point that what they have encouraged other people to do, they won't do themselves. And... They swing and they miss on being people of generosity. They, they see a person in need. They know that Scripture calls them into engaging and interacting and helping 
and giving, even when it means sacrificing yourself. And so these two that passed by, maybe they were afraid that if they paused that they were going to get hijacked themselves. Maybe they were on their way to some pressing engagement and didn't have time. Maybe they were just afraid of, you know, touching a guy and interacting and then therefore, you know, somehow becoming ceremonially unclean for a period of time. So they just go on by. And then a Samaritan comes along. And Samaritans were just hated people. The Jews didn't like them at all. And the Samaritan ends up being the picture that we get of a noble person. Samaritan comes along. He's a person of passion. He cares deeply. He wants to be in relationship. He sees that there's clear need laying on the side of the road, and he cares enough. He's engaged enough with life that he stops. He's a person of integrity, clearly. He's a person of generosity. Because not only did he care for this man laying on the side of the road, but he helped him into town. He got him to a place, and he said, hey, I'm going to be back through after a few days. And if there's any expense that you incur to take care of this guy while I'm gone, when I come back through, I will repay all of it. An unlikely person, but the person, the, this Samaritan man gives us this one picture in Scripture. There's many as you read through the Bible. As you build these qualities into your life, you begin to become a noble person. And they all require intentional effort. You have to exercise them. You have to do your spiritual sit-ups. I know you can groan, um, but incline your eyes. Look to God. Incline your ears. Listen for God. Incline your hearts. Lift your heart to God so that he can begin to mold and shape and speak into you. Fix your eyes on him. Listen for his wisdom. Set your heart that you are going to obey what God asks of you. And the Holy Spirit is along to help you to help instill and develop these habits in your life, to be honest, to be true, to be passionate, to be caring, all those things that we've talked about. And the Holy Spirit's also along to help you change your spiritual diet as well. Get rid of the junk food. You don't, you don't need the anger. You don't need the complaining. You don't need all of these sorts of things that are like the equivalent of Mountain Dew and Doritos, as good as they might be. You got to put the spiritual junk food away to live a healthier spiritual life. And second, you need to surround yourself with people who can help. You need to have partners for the journey to be your strength to be your support, to be your encourager. I always think about Moses when he is, uh, they're in the battle, and he figured out that when his hands are raised, that their armies were successful. And the battle raged on for a long time, and, and Moses, he grew weary. I mean, just try and stand like this for any period of time. And your arms 
will grow weary. Your arms will get tired, and, and you'll, want, you'll want to drop them. This is an inclined position. When your eyes, your ears, and your hearts are in this position, I'm not saying that any of this is easy. It takes, it takes intentional effort. But the Bible also, the story tells us that when Moses' arms grew weary and they started to faint like this and the battle started to change, that he had two men who came alongside him, Aaron and Hur. And each one stood under his arm and held his arm up so that he could stay in this position. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of how we go through life sometimes, is that when it gets hard and it gets weary and we just want to give in and give in to the peer pressure to say, you know what, that integrity, that's just, you can sacrifice that for a little bit. It's no big deal. You need to have people who are going to hold your arms, hold your heart, hold your eyes, hold your ears up and say, you can do it. I'm here to help you hold. In the end, Isaiah gets to this point in chapter 32 in verses 16 and 17, and he talks about the fruit of living a noble life, and he reports it like this. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. See, when you're, when you're living in recline, if you're living on the decline, you're going to enter into what Isaiah describes as the wasteland, the dryness, the desert. But when you start to incline your life to God, when you start paying attention to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one who will reign with righteousness, all of those dry wastelands will become fertile ground. The Spirit of God is at work in the world making all things new. Where things are dead, He's bringing life. Where things are broken, He's bringing wholeness. Where there is injustice, He is bringing His righteousness to bear. And our old ways, we need to leave them behind and relinquish those, leave them in the past. So let's with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the help of each other, let's strive to be people of upward nobility, people of passion, people of integrity, people of generosity, and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.